Let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 10. This last section of John uh, chapter 10, we've spent some time on this chapter, uh, is bracketed by these events in verse 19. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. And then in verse 42, many believed in him there. So Jesus is causing division on the one hand, but he is also bringing people to a living, saving faith in him on the other. So Jesus is at the center of the events as they unfold, but they're, they're not the events we expect. There's a division caused by Jesus among the Jews. He is a divisive figure. He had said that all along. He had come into the world to cause division. He had come to bring a sword that would divide parents and children, brothers and sisters. The presence of Jesus is divisive because he separates people who believe and don't believe by his presence. But his presence is not only divisive, but it is a saving presence. And many believed in him. And so Jesus is at the center of the events, and I think we're being called in this section this evening to be careful about Jesus, because he's divisive, because he is not safe in one sense. He is a disruptor of the even tenor of our lives. He intrudes himself into our lives and disturbs our equilibrium and makes us think we're to be careful. We're to be careful what we say of Jesus, what we ask of Jesus, and what we make of Jesus. We're to be careful what we say of Jesus. Verse 19, this division among the people is becoming sharper and more pronounced as he nears the hour, the hour, the time, that moment in God's book that has been appointed for him to do his great work of salvation. As, as we get nearer that time, so the crisis deepens and the hostility rises. And the authorities are becoming increasingly frustrated with him. As you can see in verse 20, many of them said about Jesus, he has a demon, he is insane. Why listen to him? Well, they can't make up their mind. Does he have a demon? Is he insane? One thing's for sure, why should we listen to him? And this accusation that is bubbling around in the back of their minds is a very serious one. It comes very close to the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin that we read about in Matthew chapter 12. Let me remind you of that passage. Whoever, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And what we see here is that they are ascribing the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus not to the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, but they're consigning these things to another spirit, an evil spirit, 
so they've come very close to that point where they are going to commit the unpardonable sin. Already we see evidence of a deliberate, sustained closing of the ears and the eyes and the heart to the clear witness of the Holy Spirit of truth. And that accusation is also evidence of a deeply a deepening resolve on the part of his opponents, a, a resolute closing of the eyes and ears to the truth, a denial which is only going in one direction, there's only one end, but a descent into darkness that is unbroken and eternal. And what was it that led them to this conclusion? Well, it was because of these Words. You notice in verse 19, it was the division is among the Jews because of his words. This is a reference to his unequaled claims that emerge out of his extraordinary self-consciousness of his relationship, his unique relationship with God. John is writing as an eyewitness of these events. He was there. John saw the miracles, and those people he's writing about had seen the miracles. John had heard the teaching. These people had heard the same teaching. Some of those who were there, you notice in verse 21, challenge this growing skepticism. They remind the people of the uniqueness, both of his teaching and of his miracles. Others said, we read, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The words of Jesus reveal his self-conscious awareness of his eternal relationship with his Father in heaven. You may know that among scholarly circles in theological colleges, very often there's this question, how much did Jesus know? How much was Jesus conscious of uh, his divine nature and his divine existence? Well, these references in John's gospel open the door to the answer to that question. He is very conscious. In fact, in chapter 13, we're going to read that when we eventually get there, that he was very conscious that he had come from God and was going back to God. In fact, we've noticed this emerging over and over again in his teaching. He had come from God. He had come into the world. He's very conscious that he isn't just born the way you and I are, but he has come into the world. And he's come into the world by way of that birth. He is aware that he is on a divine mission. He's already told them that he's come to lay down his life, that he might take it up again. People like John, who's writing this, have not, Im have not imagined or invented this Jesus. He is utterly unique. There is nobody like this in history. As what somebody has said, it would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. So unique is he uh, on the pages. And so as we come and we read this judgment by these people, as we see the issue that is coming to the fore, the issue that's dividing people is how they think about Jesus. John Newton's hymn comes to mind, what, what think ye of Christ is the test. To try both your state where you are in relation to God and your scheme, what you think in relation to God, because you cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears to your view as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot.
John Newton is capturing the, ch the, the, the challenge, really, of these verses. We must be very careful what we say of Jesus. Secondly, we must be very careful what we ask of Jesus. In the passage we read from verse 22, we now come to the feast. And in John's gospel, the, the word feast is a kind of key word. It, it is an, no incidental reference. Much of what John writes centers around various feasts that were celebrated by the Jews. And this is the feast of dedication. You know it as Hanukkah or Hanukkah or however you pronounce it. And uh, Hanukkah does not have any biblical roots. It comes from a period in that silent era between Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet, and, and Matthew. Between Malachi and Matthew, those 400 silent years in that period, 167 AD, uh, sorry, BC. And at that time, the Greeks are in control. And the Syrian, the Greek empire is divided into, into several parts. So there's a Syrian emperor who is a Greek character called Antiochus Epiphanes. And this blessed man was trying to establish uniformity of worship throughout his empire. And he came to Jerusalem. He de desecrated the temple. He erected an altar to the Greek god Zeus, where the Holy of Holies was, and he slaughtered a pig, which was an unclean animal, on that altar. And this provoked a heroic struggle, a struggle led by Judas Maccabeus. Remember Handel's oratorio of that name? He's the conquering hero who comes. And Judas Maccabeus led an unsuccessful revolt against the Syrians, and in 164 BC, they managed to recapture and reconsecrate the temple in an eight-day celebration. It was a great time. It was remembered and is still remembered in December as a great day of victory for freedom of worship. It was held in December, as I've said. That's why the reference to the fact that it was winter, verse 22, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon because that colonnade provided actually protection from the cold wind, winter blast. So we're given the reference and the situation. And this is important background to the question that they ask in verse 24. Here's their question. The Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, you could translate it, how long do you intend to annoy us? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Just say it, will you? Will you just spill the beans? Are you the Messiah? Come out and say it clearly. Now, they asked him this question, you understand, not because they wanted to believe in him, but because they wanted to have a firm charge against him. So notice Jesus' response. I told you and you do not believe. Now, there's a sense in which he had not told them directly. He had never come out and said, I am the Messiah. He had done that with people outside of Judaism. He had done it with that woman at the well of Samaria, the Samaritan woman. And I think most likely his reticence to use the word Messiah has to do with the over-politicized and over-militarized understanding of what the Messiah King would do when he came. Again, the, the reference to this feast is important. On the Feast of Dedication, what are people thinking about? 
Well, they're thinking about Judas Maccabeus. See, the conquering hero comes. They're thinking Messiah. They're thinking, oh, not the Messiah, Judas Maccabeus, oratorial. They're thinking of, they're thinking of nationalistic pride. They're thinking of uh, overthrowing the government. They're thinking of coup d'etats. They're not thinking about the biblical view of the Messiah. And so Jesus refuses to use explicitly the word Messiah. But he says to them, if you were listening, if you were listening carefully, you would have heard me tell you. You would have heard me tell you, for example, in that which has dominated this entire chapter, that figure of speech that Jesus uses when he's speaking to the people, when he calls himself the door of the fold. He is saying, I'm the only way in and out of the people of God. When he calls himself the good shepherd, he is identifying himself with the Lord who is the shepherd of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. That was a clue. And the Lord who is the shepherd is going to send a David who will shepherd his people Israel. It's a messianic picture. He's already talked about the good shepherd laying down his life, like that servant in the book of Isaiah who lays down his life for the people. And he's declared that he is the invincible, supernatural one who has authority not only to lay down his life, but to take back his life in resurrection from the dead. And the one who is gathering a people to himself to share his presence forever in joy. Jesus is saying to these people, am I the Messiah? Think about what I've said. Think about what I've been teaching. Think of the claims that I've been making. They will tell you the answer to that question, and they will tell you the kind of Messiah that I am. That's my answer, Jesus says. He doesn't leave it there. Of course, he goes on to underline the kind of Messiah he had come to be. Not like Judas Maccabeus, raising an army and establishing the Jewish Liberation Army and uh, attacking the authorities. No, he had come to be another kind of Messiah, and the evidence they need was all around him. Look at what he says. The works that I do, verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He's saying to them, these, these miracles I've been doing are all you need as evidence that I'm the Messiah promised in Scripture as opposed to common and popular mythology. I've been doing the things that only God can do. Surely you see that. Surely I've demonstrated that. When I turn 500 gallons of water into 500 gallons of well-aged Chateau Neuf du Pape, you could see, or was it Rioja? I don't know. Well, you can see that only God can do that. When I fed the multitudes, perhaps as many as 10,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, as many as 10,000 or more people, when I fed them with one little boy's little packed lunch, is that not something only God can do? When I made blind people see and lame people walk and dead people rise, the works that I do demonstrate what? They demonstrate that I'm going around here with the power of God. How am I using this power? Am I using this power to build myself up and build my reputation up? Am I using it to serve me? Am I going down in the morning to a bare table and going zap and there's a breakfast all laid for me? 
Am I using my powers to satisfy what I want or what I'm doing? No, I've been using my powers to demonstrate the power of God to you. Surely you can connect the dots. He says to them, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Now, of course, there were individuals. And uh, they had come to believe in him. But only those who were his sheep, as he says later on in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What was the problem of these people? I told you, you do not believe. Verse 26, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now, I want you to notice the explanation Jesus gives for their unbelief. There's no ambiguity in his teaching. No question of his miraculous power. Nothing inadequate about the revelation of God that he had proclaimed. He says to them, the problem is in you. You do not believe. I told you, but you don't believe. You haven't got a heart to believe. You don't want to believe. Your problem is spiritual blindness. It isn't that you lack information. I told you, you lack repentance and faith. It isn't that you had insufficient exposure to the truth. I told you again and again and again, but you would not believe. You hated the truth. Those who really want the truth will find the truth. Jesus had refused to commit himself to these people because they willfully rejected the truth. The plain answer is this. If he had said, I am Messiah, they wouldn't have believed anymore. He had already given them enough to go on. They would not believe. I told you, and you would not believe. But there's another side to this truth. Did you notice it? The other reason is you are not part of my flock. So on the one hand, their unbelief lies in their unwillingness to believe. And on the other hand, it lies within the scope of God's divine purposes. They're not part of God's flock. Now you say, those seem like a tension there between those two things. And can I say the Bible nowhere tries to harmonize, rationalize, or apologize for that tension of thought that we find there. These are things beyond our human comprehension. We can't resolve them with our finite minds, but the principle is found all over the Bible. For example, in Luke 22, Jesus says this, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed as it has been determined. And he's saying two things there. There's a betrayer who will betray me because he chooses to betray me. It's his choice to betray me. He wants to betray me. He will betray me. But that betrayal has been determined. It has been planned by God. And he can, he can go on to say, having said that, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man will be betrayed. Woe to him. He does it by himself. He does it of his own will, his own, in, his own desires. But nonetheless, it fits into the pattern of God's purpose. What is true of the betrayer is true of the unbeliever, Jesus is saying. 
The unbeliever does not believe of his own choice, by his own will, in his own determination. Yet at the same time it is true that the unbeliever does not believe because he is not one of Christ's sheep. But there's a positive side to this. Look at verse 27. The positive side is, my sheep do hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's the reassurance that as we go out with the word of Christ, that there will be a response, there will be effective preaching, there will be those who will come to know him. The sheep, those God has chosen, who are out there, recognize his voice, and they come to him, and they go on to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's a great encouragement to us in our gospel work. And those who come to Jesus are given this wonderful gift in verse 28. They're given eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They're given the life of the kingdom of God. They're no longer part of this passing evil world under the power and control of the evil one. And they will never perish because they are part of the permanent they're part of the permanent heavenly kingdom that will not pass away. And neither humans nor angels or demons or Satan himself or death or hell can snatch them out of his or his father's hand. My name from the palms of his hand, eternity will not erase. Engraved in his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. That's the reality. The Apostle Paul grasped the wonder of this when he wrote, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you see the reason Jesus supplies for our security. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We looked at that briefly last time. And I don't want to go over that ground. But here you see the Father and the Son are one in purpose and mission. Because they are one in being and essence. The one there is neuter. It's not masculine. It's neuter. Therefore it refers to one thing. The Father and the Son are one thing, one in substance, one in essence, one in being. And the crowd who had come asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? They were thinking one thing when they thought Messiah. They were thinking Judas Maccabeus. And here is Jesus giving them more than they bargained for. Because his final definition and his final answer takes his identity way beyond that kind of Messiah figure. Way beyond that. Way beyond that plus infinity. He's saying far more than they ever could have imagined. Oneness with God the Father. And do you see, in the context, the oneness between the Father and the Son serves your salvation. The Father and the Son being one serves your salvation. No one can take you away from me because I'm stronger than all, says Jesus. No one can take you away from my Father because my Father is stronger than all. When you're in my hand, you're in his hand. When you're in his hand, you're in my hand. And my omnipotence and our unity 
preserve your safety and your salvation. You see, these high doctrines matter. They matter for your salvation. Here is the very nature of God revealed to us. One God, here's the Father and the Son, and together, what are they doing? They are ensuring, they are ensuring the salvation of God's people. So we must be careful what we ask Jesus, because whatever we ask of him, he might come back with an answer we weren't prepared for, we weren't ready for, as he does with these people here. Well, the third thing in the passage is we must be careful what we make of Jesus. Whatever modern scholars may make of Jesus and his words in verse 30 about being one with the Father, we can see the effect on his hearers was profound and united. They knew what they'd heard. They had heard one more undeniable, unmistakable, blasphemous claim to deity. Look at verse 31. They picked up stones to stone him. They were gripped with a passion and a fury. Although the Romans prohibited the Jews from exercising capital punishment, this lynch mob were getting ready to take matters into their hands, their own hands. Jesus answers them, I've shown you many good, meaning noble, excellent, beautiful works from my Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Is it for raising the dead? Is it for making the blind see? Or the lame walk? Or feeding the multitude? Which of the works are you stoning me for doing? My father's works. You see how he's challenging them. He's putting them on the spot. For which of the works are you stoning me? He says. But they're in no mood, you see. So invincible has their unbelief come. They're in no mood to be swayed by three years of da daily demonstrations of the mercy and might of Jesus. In spite of his defense, they make their charge clear. Verse 33. They answered him. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now you understand that in John's gospel, that is precisely what Jesus is not doing. That is precisely what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not acting like Adam in the Garden of Eden, aspiring to be God. John has made it very clear from the very beginning that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. He is the Word become flesh. He is the Father's Son, which means He shares the very nature of the Father. Jesus has not come to grasp equality with God. He's not, not come to reach out for Godness as if this is something different from or other than what he is in himself. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in, in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus did not think equality with God something to be grasped for. Well, why not? Because he already possessed it. He's already underlined to these people that he comes as God's equal and God's envoy to see God's glory above everything else. But you notice, in his response to them, 
he quotes the scripture. He knew they took this word God very seriously. So he answered them, is it not written in your law? And here he means that shorthand for the entire Old Testament scripture, as we call it. Is it not written in your law? Quote, I said, you are God's. That comes from Psalm 82, verse 6. God is rebuking the leaders of Israel, the unjust judges, and he's calling them gods in a far lesser way, of course, than he is, but they are ruling as his representatives and as his spokesmen. So Jesus quotes that. And the Jewish leaders he knew could not dispute that that was in the Bible, that the Bible said that. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, that is those people, they were people who were on the receiving end of the word of God, and scripture cannot be broken, he knew they believed that. He knew and understood that they believed in the authority of the Bible. They believed in its absolute authority. They believed the Bible was without error. They believed that scripture could not be broken, never nullified or set aside. But he's arguing, listen, if mere men, those who were on the receiving end of the word of God, which came to them, as opposed to him who is the word of God, bringing it to people, if those men who were mere men, and in fact even were evil men, they were unjust judges, if they are called gods, quote unquote, in scripture, he goes on, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because you said, I am the Son of God. Now I know what Jesus is not doing here. He's not using that text as evidence of his deity. He is using that text as a rebuke to them for their unthinking overreaction to his using the word God of himself. And he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He is saying this, if the word God could be used of mortal men who were no more than leaders and rulers in Israel, judges, how much more should that word be appropriate to use of one who had done more than enough to demonstrate that he worked the works of Almighty God himself. It was entirely appropriate. In fact, he and he alone, he underlines, is the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. What is he saying there? He is saying, I am from outside of the system. I am from outside of this space-time continuum of the world and the universe as you know it. I'm outside of time and I was consecrated outside of time and I was sent into the world to do this business that I've come to do. He is underlining, you see, that he is utterly unique. He is claiming to be God but not another God. He is claiming to be God, but not another God. That he and the Father were of one kind, one thing. And this, of course, is where John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God. And through him everything was made. And the Word 
became flesh, became enfleshed, became a human being. The Word became flesh. That's John chapter 1. Or John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son, the son does likewise. Now, who can do what God does except God? Who can do what God does except God? You have to be God to be able to do what God does. Is God the creator? Christ is the creator. Here Jesus is challenging what they make of him. And he makes one last merciful appeal to them. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He says, maybe you can't take this, all of this in right now. Maybe it's too much information for you. But will you please take in what you can? Maybe you can't get your head around how I can be one with the Father. Maybe that's just a bit much for you to take in at this moment. But can you look at the works that I perform and see that they are the works of God and believe them? God will give you understanding. God will lead you on in your thinking. God will bring you to an understanding of these things. Maybe that's where you are this evening. Maybe you're trying to get your head around some of the really big theological thoughts that come out of the Bible, and it's too much for you. It's giving you a headache. And what God is saying to you this evening is believe what you can. You don't have to believe it all at the beginning. One of the great things I, I think is marvelous about our churchmanship here is that you you don't have to believe very much to become a member of the church you just have to believe in the Lord Jesus to become an officer in the church you have to believe a lot of stuff a whole lot of stuff and that's the way it should be but to be a member of the church you don't have to believe very much you just have to believe in the Lord Jesus and then within the fellowship of the church, you grow in your understanding of Jesus. That's the whole idea. You don't have to know it all before you come in, but you have to come in and then grow in your understanding and knowledge. That's what he's saying to these people. If you can't take it all in right now, take in what you can. Believe what you can. And let me deal with the rest. Come and believe what you can so that you may know and understand in time that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Well, at the end of the passage, he goes away over the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. I think what John is doing in pointing that out to us is this. That the soil in which saving faith springs up and grows is the soil where Christ has been preached. John the Baptist believed in Jesus. And where John's message had been heard and embraced and respected, faith in Jesus flourished. 
And what did they say about John's ministry? What did the gospel writer focus on? He reports what the people said. John did no signs. He wasn't the miracle worker. But everything he said about this man was true. And they believed it. And they were saved. They believed in him there. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this evening, we're all at different stages in our pilgrimage towards understanding who Jesus is, why he has come, and what he expects. We thank you that he is gentle with us, that he shows us himself in incremental ways. There's so much of him to, to grasp. Those of us who have been reading the Bible and studying Scripture for 40 plus years are finding new things every day, new depths, new wonders, new joys, new thrills, new excitement, new vistas of truth. There's enough for an elephant to swim in, and there's nothing for a child to paddle in. And if we're, some of us, at the level of just paddling on the edges, we pray that we would do that. We'd step in, stepping in to believe, to belief as much as we can of Jesus. Not turning away from him, not resorting to the demonic language of some, not casting him off because he doesn't fit the kind of leader we wish we had, but that we would believe what we can of him. And find in him safety, security, and salvation, we pray. In his strong name, amen.